Welcome to episode 547 of I Am Talk, your weekly fix in all things Iron Man. Rightio, team, welcome along to episode 547 of Iron Talk with Coach John Newsom and Bevan James Isles. Once again, it's not actually a traditional show. We're in that middle of the year, or middle of the end of the year stage. We're going to get back into the studios next week, but today it's just me and we've got a pretty cool interview coming up. Before we get into that, just want to say a big thank you to our sponsors, X Endurance, Lactic Buffer. We've got uh, athlinks.com, our social networking for endurance athletes, and also our patrons. And our patrons, if you're one of our patrons right now and you're riding your bike or you're going for your run or you're hiding from the family on your holiday break, just think to yourself, you rock. As you say that, like, just go, oh, rock. Yeah, you rock. Really, you support us so much in what we do, so thank you so much for that. In today's show, guys, we've got a an, an interview. It's, we're in that kind of mid-season or end-of-the-year phase where we have a couple of weeks off the show and we just make sure we get some content out. And a few weeks ago, in episode 541, we had an interview with Matt Fitzgerald about his latest book, which is called, now let me call, we'll put it up here, it's called The Endurance Diet, Discovering the Five Core Habits of the World's Greatest Athletes to Look, Feel, and Perform Better. Now, this book has actually been released today. I'm recording this show on the 27th of December, 2016, and it just came out today. So if you want to go, you know, we, we had this interview a few weeks ago. If you want to go back and now get the book, uh, check it out. So go do that, because I really enjoyed the interview, and I think it'd be a really good read to kind of have a see, you know, what he's done in this latest piece of work. But when I did that interview, I actually approached Matt about coming on my other show, The Bevan James Oil Show. Now, that show is very much around the mind of exercise and the behaviours that create great success with exercise. And at the time I got Matt on and I kind of once I got him on for that, he said, well, I'm actually doing a book on nutrition. Do you want to talk about that? And I thought, well, let's get you on for Iron Talk with the nutrition book. And I want to talk to you about, you know, mind book on my show. And so the book that, I, that really inspired me to get Matt on the show was called How Bad Do You Want It? Mastering the Psychology of Mind Over Matter. And this book, basically what Matt has done has looked at the science around what are the, the strategies that actually are proven to work in helping people get better at the mind game of exercise. And I really enjoyed this book. And the reason I really enjoyed this book is he basically each chapter starts with, generally speaking, an endurance sports story. And, and there's all these different stories, and many of them are people from our world we know really well, and leading towards a kind of an education, you know, here's the mind strategy that got this person through this adversity, and then how do you apply it to your life? So I really enjoyed the book, and once I read the book, I thought, jeepers, I've got to get Matt on the show. So today what I'm going to do is I'm going to put the interview up that I did with Matt that I've already released on the Bevan James Owls show on the book, How Bad Do You Want It? And if you want to get the book, I'll put a link to it in the show notes for this week's show. So How Bad Do You Want It? I do recommend it's a great read. You may want to get both books if you get the endurance diet at the same time. So I'm going to be putting that on real soon. But before I do, I just want to talk about our sponsor, and that is Extreme Endurance. And today I want to talk about Fuel 5. Fuel 5 is a cutting-edge energy carbohydrate formula made up of five forms of fuel, four different types of carbohydrate plus lactate. It's got a blend of organic sweet potato, multidextrin, dextrose, lactic and sucrose to is designed to give you your body its preferred substrate 
which is your fuel enzyme, to promote glycogen synthesis. So basically, it's providing you, the whole idea of it is, is it's getting the energy into your body, the best kind of fuels that you can get in, and it's designed in a way to promote it so you get it as fast as possible. Now, when we're out there exercising, this is obviously a really good kind of fuel that we want to be getting in, because if we are out there exercising, and we're trying to have a good performance, if we can use that energy ASAP, that's going to help us in, in our game. So you can go to X Endurance if you are looking for that kind of little bit of a blend of it's going to help you get better energy when you're out there exercising. You can go to xendurance.com and just reading the things, the, the benefits. Uh, you get uh, energy blend, stabilizes blood sugar levels during exercises, enhances energy production for prolonged exercise, electrolytes and vitamins B6 and B12 to assist recovery and helps to eliminate cramping and muscle burn. Also clean, light flavored for extended training. So check out Fuel5, go to xendurance.com and you can't go wrong. Okay, I'm going to get straight into my interview with Matt Fitzgerald talking about his book, How Bad Do You Want It? Right, team. I'm very excited to have a, a bit of a legend, really, in, in the sport of endurance sport. He's been one of the most prolific content creators in endurance sport, and uh, in many ways, uh, not just you know getting lots of content out there, but kind of high level content in uh, nutrition uh, and training strategies, and also in mind strategies. And uh, I just thought it'd be really great to get him on the show because you know the show is very much about kind of mind strategies and things like that. And so I thought it'd be really good to get him on the show. So we've got Matt Fitzgerald on the show. How you go, mate? I'm doing well. How are you? Uh, I'm really good. So, um, so today we're going to be talking a little bit about uh, how bad do you want it? Was which was your previous book? Yeah, I know you've got another book coming out right now. But I mean, let's, let's just start off a little bit with yourself. Maybe just give the audience a little bit of a kind of an introduction to Matt. Sure. So I'm coming at you from the great state of California. Um, I grew up on the opposite side of the United States in New Hampshire. Um, been a runner most of my life. Uh, my dad, my father was running marathons back in the uh, the early mid 1980s when I was growing up, and so I, I caught the the running bug from him. Um, my father's also a writer, um, and I, I guess I got the inherited the the writing knack from him as well. Um, so, you know, like I said, I've been running most of my life and, and writing about running uh, ever since I um, graduated from from college, and then uh, branched into triathlon in the late 1990s and started coaching shortly after that. And so tell us about your own athletic career, because in your book you talk a little bit about how, you know, you, you were a pretty decent athlete as a young person, and then there was a kind of a fadeaway period, and then you came back into sports. Maybe tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so, um, you know, when I ran in high school, um, I, I, I had some success and um, you know developed into one of the one of the better cross country runners in in my state. It was a small state, so I wasn't I wasn't bound for the Olympics or anything, but I did okay. Uh, but then ran into problems with um, uh, the mental side of, of the sport. Um, it wasn't so much the pressure to to win um, as uh, the fear of the suffering involved. You know, endurance sports are, you know, they're not fun in the way that, you know, football is or, you know, cricket or, <laughs> or, or whatever. You know, there's no ball. There's no no teammates per se. You know, you're really out there on your own. And it's very painful. Um, and I, I really struggled with that dimension of the sport. I could just feel it when I was, you know, when I was dashing toward the finish line of a race neck and neck with a rival. I could just feel that that other person next to me 
uh, was tougher than I am, was, you know, willing to dig deeper than I was. And it really just, uh, it, it got worse and worse. And I became a classic head case and it, it just spoiled the experience for me. I ended up, you know, quitting. Um, uh, I was, you know, I was going to run in college, but ended up not doing that and then not getting back into the running until I was in my mid twenties. And when, and when that happened, you know, I, I wanted to, you know, I wanted to become the athlete I, I could have been, you know, if I hadn't quit, mm. but also more than anything, I wanted to get the, the monkey off my back of, of seeing myself as mentally weak. You know, I, nobody wants to see themselves as a coward. And I really did. Wow. Um, so in my, in my second, you know, in my, in my rebirth as an athlete, that was very, very important to me to really tackle the mental side of the sport and become strong where I had previously been weak. So, so, you know, you're kind of saying I was almost scarred by the, the, the experience of quitting, you know, this kind of, the pressure got too much for me, it became an experience that wasn't that enjoyable. And so I, I kind of quit. And then I saw myself as I labeled myself as a coward or not brave or whatever that is for you. What was the tipping point which made you think, no, I need to move back? Um, you know, it, it was just, uh, it, I, I don't know, I kind of think I, I would have gotten back into it regardless. But but what happened was, um, after I graduated from uh, university, I moved to California with the intent of just at this point, I was out of shape and overweight. You know, I was I had not been running for years. I lifted weights, but I, I wasn't really, you know, I would get winded climbing a flight of stairs <laughs> at this point in my life. And my, you know, I wanted to be a writer. Um, and so I was just going to get the first decent writing job I could find in San Francisco. It turned out that that job was with a startup endurance sports magazine. Oh, okay. um, so, you know, I, I, I wasn't training or fit at the time, but suddenly I was surrounded by endurance athletes again. And it just lit the spark. Um, you know, I, I, I just I saw. You know, it, it was the competitive side. Of it. I looked around at some of the people I was working with and thought, you know, what? I could kick their butts if I got back in shape. <laughs> and so that started the process. You know, it's a slippery slope. At first, you think you're going to be somewhat casual about it. Um, you know, maybe only train every other day, but you know, a little leads to more, and pretty soon you're just sucked all the way in. So, so you, you know, you've written a lot of books on again endurance sports. Definitely your area of expertise. Um, when it, when you think about this book and uh, how bad do you want it, leading into it, what was your perspective leading into it? Well, you know, um, I I have an older brother who uh, studied uh, brain science. Oh wow! Um, and yeah, so he would, <laughs> which is is fascinating stuff. And and he would tell me about the things he was learning, um, and sort of share. He would suggest, you know, books to read about brain science that were intended for a lay audience. So you didn't have to be a scientist. And I, I started, you know, reading some of these books and thought, well, this is really fascinating stuff. And then around the same time, exercise scientists started to pay attention to the brain really for the first time. So, you know, you know um, our former president here, uh, Bill Clinton, referred to the 1990s as the decade of the brain. Uh, because, you know, there were new technologies and methodologies that allowed us to kind of open up that black box, you know, of our heads and see inside for the first time ever. So it revolutionized a lot of areas of science, including sports science. And I felt like because of my brother's influence, I sort of was maybe a step ahead of a lot of other, uh, you know, endurance coaches where mm -hmm. I actually was a little bit more comfortable than others might be with some of the terminology and, you know, the anatomy and all that stuff. So I, you know, I began, and plus I had this longstanding interest in the psychology of endurance sports, just as an athlete who struggled with that dimension of it. So, uh, you know, I began, you know, reading a lot about this stuff, the work of Tim Noakes, you know, the legendary exercise physiologist from 
South Africa and, um, and just, you know, reading about it, learning and, and writing about it. You know, I, I did a book called Brain Training for Runners uh, in, back in 2007. Um, and so, but this science continues to evolve. You know, there's mm. a, a leading researcher now whose name is Samuela Marcora. He's an uh, Italian researching in, uh, in the UK. Um, and uh, he wrote the forward, forward to my book. So he, you know, so there's, there's constantly new stuff happening and, and new stuff and my own thinking evolves, especially as I apply it. So there was just more to say on the subject. At the same time, over the years, I've been collecting a lot of great stories uh, from the world of endurance sports. Um, stories, you know, um, I wrote Iron War, uh, another <laughs> book of mine about you know the classic rivalry between Dave Scott and Mark Allen in the 1980s that led to what many people consider you know the greatest endurance sports race of all time. And a lot of these these stories, yeah, I'm a, I'm a fan of endurance sports. And, you know, I'm the kind of person who can, you know, I can watch a marathon and it's not like watching grass grow the way, <laughs> the way it might be for other people. And so, you know, what led, you know, I'm getting to, to around to answering your question, what led to this specific book is that I thought, you know, these stories that I've, you know, these stories of, um, you know, gr great, great endurance sports athletes who have faced huge setbacks or moments of adversity and overcome them somehow, uh, they really exemplify um, the, the kind of psychological coping skills that every athlete needs in order to master that dimension of the sport and fulfill their potential. But these stories also, they serve as a great way to make some of, some of the science, which can get kind of heady, um, you know, it's sort of like hiding spinach in a casserole to get your kids to eat. <laughs> you, know, you know, if I, I felt like if I just wrote a straight book that was all 100% brain science applied to endurance sport, people wouldn't read it, you know, mm. you know, so I thought, you know, to, to combine the narrative, these, these true stories that kind of show the science at work, um, would be a way to make people kind of, uh, understand it and, and have a sense of how to apply it in, in their own, uh, you know, search for improvement as athletes. I, I do love the way it's written. It's, it's kind of like a Gladwell approach, isn't it? There's these kind of really powerful stories and they are really powerful. And I'm an endurance athlete, so I kind of, I love the stories, but you know, even those people who aren't endurance athletes, you will, for a lot of this audience aren't, it's a kind of, you know, you just get pretty inspired by these stories. And as you say, you kind of tell the story and then kind of get the message in there throughout the story as well. And it's done quite well. Thank you. Yeah. So one thing you talk about in the book is this idea of perceived exertion. So maybe you could describe to us, um, you know, this idea of what is perceived exertion and what we should be looking to do to improve perceived exertion because, uh, you know, for a lot of people listening to this, they might be doing any exercise at all or right. they're very entry level or lower level. So, you know, you know, when we think of the people doing Ironman and stuff like that, that's a completely different beast. But for right. those who maybe don't have that kind of next level understanding, what is perceived exertion and how do you talk about maybe the next levels of perceived exertion? Sure. Yeah, so the term I actually prefer, and I'm, I'm, I'm guided by this on the researchers like Samuela Marcora, who I mentioned before, uh, he, he's kind of switched over to perceived effort. Perceived exertion is more about how intense an exercise effort feels, and perceived effort is more how hard it feels. And the distinction is this. If, if you start off at a dead sprint, um, it's very intense and it's very hard from the beginning. But you could also start off exercising at a slow jog, it's not intense, but if you keep up that slow jog for several hours, it will become just as hard as that sprint was mm. from the beginning. So yeah. that's kind of the distinction between perceived exertion and perceived effort. So, you know, perceived effort is really just your 
your global sense of how hard you're working um, at a given moment. So, you know, it, it, it is a perception like any any other. You can think of you can make a list of perceptions like feeling hot or cold, feeling thirsty or hungry. Pain is a perception, but they're all distinct. They're all distinct, right? Like you can never con- confuse being hungry for being hot. You know, you just you you know when you're hungry and you know when you're hot. <laughs> yeah. And, and and perceived effort is the same thing. You know, it, it's just another perception that is really distinct from any other. So you know, you might be running and you and you could feel some pain in your legs, but that pain is distinct from your effort, which is your sense. It's almost just like your body's resistance to your mind's will, you know, to to move. Um, and it's it's critically important um, for anyone who exercises because you know. Exercise is hard, <laughs> you know, because because you feel effort, you know, it mm. takes an effort to do it. That's the reason most people don't exercise much at all. You know, if it felt like sex, everyone would do it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it's also, you know, so it prevents a lot of people from exercising at all. But it also is what separates, you know, the great from the merely good. You know, if you look at people who are actually trying to make a, a living or go to the Olympics, you know, someone who has the capacity to handle a higher level of perceived effort than another athlete who is equally talented physically, who works just as hard. That could be all that separates, you know, gold and silver, you know, as it were. So, you know, all the way up from the bottom, from the base to the top of the pyramid, you know, perceived effort is, is crucially important. And one thing you talked about, which I, I was really fascinated by, was this whole idea of that if I think it's going to be easy, my perceived effort is less. Whereas if I perceive that the race is going to be hard or, or the, the activity I'm going to do is actually the perceived effort seems to be less because I've prepared myself for a, a higher level. Right. Yeah. You know, that's called bracing yourself. Um, and, you know, it, it's a good idea just as a matter of, you know, psychological coping. If, you, if you're if you're facing an experience that will be challenging it's best to know it and accept it. You know, you will perform better and just have um, uh, it, you know, you'll be able to cope you know, with the experience better, whether it's uh, experience that's going to be painful or, you know, a p- experience that's going to be emotionally challenging or, you know, one like you, you wouldn't want to go to military boot camp and think uh, this is going to be a cakewalk, you know, because mm. you're just you're not psychologically prepared. Same thing if you're going to do, you know, run a marathon, you know, if you just sort of, you know, just kind of naively hope, you know, maybe it will just be miraculously easy. You're setting yourself up for um, sort of a, a rude awakening, you know, when, when, it, when it inevitably is hard, you're not ready for it. Um, so yeah, there's some interesting research showing that um, when you brace yourself in this way, um, and you, then, and then, then you, um, you know, experience either, you know, pain or perceived effort in an exercise context, it's not that you feel it less, but you, but you um, are bothered by it less, and that actually allows you to perform at a higher level. It's interesting. I had a funny experience last weekend. I, I have this running group, so I, I kind of coordinate, and uh, we, we, we really try to target the new exerciser, and so we get people who have done nothing. We get them doing 5Ks, 10Ks, and, and we get them up to the half marathon, and last weekend we took a Bunch of massive bunch of runners to a half marathon, and many of them it was their first half marathon, and it was a really exa- good example of this because 
for these people, it's very much about nurturing. It's not like the elite athlete who's kind of trying to thrive and find their next level. It's very much just trying to get into the finish of their first half marathon. And right. and many of the newer ones last weekend actually had a pretty bad day. And upon reflection and upon reading your work, it's been really interesting reflecting upon we prepared them physically and we got them to the point where they knew they could achieve the goal. So we got them up to 19Ks and, and they felt quite comfortable in the 19Ks. And in some ways, we probably made them think it was that they were going to be easy enough to get through the race. And then when they got to the race, it was a little bit hot, a little bit windy, and they hadn't perceived that it was going to be harder. I think that we'd almost made it a little bit too easy in their head. And so many of them right. kind of were disappointed in their race because they kind of gave up when it got hard. Now, it's a fine line because with a newer exerciser, you are kind of nurturing a little bit more, you know, but maybe the lesson I've learned from that and from some of your work is that, okay, well, I need to nurture them to the point where they can get prepared, but then I also have to mentally prepare them for the challenge that's going to be in front of them. Right. Yeah, there's... um. You know, bracing that strategy of bracing yourself, it sounds on the surface a lot like pe pessimism. Mm. It's like, oh, like I'm going to fail. Yeah. <laughs> but that, that, that's not what you're doing. You, 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 you know, you, optimism is I believe I'm ready to achieve my goal. Bracing yourself is, but it's going to be very difficult, you know, mm. to achieve. So that, you know, th there's a balance there. You want to be optimistic and positive and expect success, but you also want to expect to, suffer for it or, or work for it or just be be ready um yeah for sure in your book you talk a, a lot about this kind of you know you, you talk about these kind of theories and one of them was that kind of the failure theory you know whole idea of that um failing is a good thing because it, it creates this kind of driver or there's a, there's a term some kind of angry term i can remember you using um you know like how does that work? Because, you know, for a lot of people, they don't have the ability to fail and keep coming back. You know, so right. for some people, it becomes this kind of angry driver that pushes them through to a higher level. But then, you know, for a lot of people who maybe aren't elite athletes, one point of failure means I give up. Uh, so right. maybe, maybe talk to us a little bit about the, for those people who do fail, but actually use it as a, as a way to make them more successful moving forward. What are some yeah. of the things you learned from that? Yeah, so that, that chapter is really about the phenomenon of resilience. Um, so the, there's a lot of talk in the book about coping skills, and, and there are a variety of them. But resilience is sort of the mother of all coping skills, because that's what, when, that's what gets you up off the floor when you've been knocked down um, and allows you to develop the more specific coping skills that, that you need. So without resilience, you, you, you will quit you know, the first time you get knocked down. And people have different, you know, this is sort of psychologists talk a lot about it. And, you know, there's a spectrum as there is with, with any other, you know, mental quality. Like some people are super resilient. Some people, you know, just crumble if you blow on them. <laughs> and uh, what some of this re research has shown, which is really interesting, is that people um, who have a high level of resilience, typically they, they, they had a childhood where they faced um, a significant amount of adversity but not a crushing amount of, of adversity. So there's sort of a bell curve. Like if you have, and I, I can sort of relate to this because I think one of the reasons I might've struggled as an athlete at, in, in my youth is that I had sort of a golden childhood, you know, mm. just like I, you know, great parents, stable family, grew up in a nice place. You know, I had no trauma, you know, nothing really yeah. went wrong. Yeah. Uh, so, so my personal experience kind of jives with the research that shows that you sort of, you don't want to be, you don't want to grow up in a war zone uh, for, you know, for the sake of resilience, you don't want to grow up in a war zone and you don't want to have, you know, a pampered, spoiled childhood either, like somewhere in the middle uh, where you face adversity and learn to, to deal with it, but not so much adversity that, you know, it kind of 
breaks you down mentally. Um, so, you know, but, you know, say, say you're someone like me who had a, you know, yeah. just a golden childhood and you want to become more resilient later as an adult, you know, then what do you do? Um, and in the book, I talk about some examples of really, you know, elite level athletes who maybe, uh, you know, had, had to do just that, that maybe resilience was the one thing they were missing. They almost had, um, you know, I talk about Cadell Evans, uh, mm. that he's really the focus of that chapter mm. where he was just like, he was born to win the tour de France. You know, he just had an unbelievable amount of talent. He got an early start on the bike. He got the, to train at the Australian Institute of Sport from the time he was a teenager, where he had a, like all the best facilities, coaches, other athletes to train with. It was just like the road was like, you know, it was paved for him to win the Tour de France. But then he went there and lost and came back a year later and lost again, came back a year later and lost again. And it seemed like the one thing he really needed to, to um, reach the top because he eventually did win the race in his seventh try was he needed those failures. You know, he, he needed that adversity in order to, um, you know, gain that that last bit of resilience, which was the only thing he was lacking. So maybe another athlete in his place would have just would have crumbled and, you know, you know, stop stop racing the Tour de France after losing it one or two times. Mm-hmm. So he had enough resilience to stay in the game, but he you know, he didn't have enough right away necessarily to win it, you know, the first time uh, he tried. So what happens is, you know, when you want when you want something, when you have a goal and you you fail to achieve it and and the failure becomes repeated eventually one of two things are, is going to happen either you will be broken by it or you'll get angry <laughs> and you know we, we tend to think of anger as a negative emotion but it isn't always there's a reason we have you know it's it's deeply instinctual to become angry in certain situations and sometimes you know there's research showing that anger is performance enhancing it, or it can be mm. in the right circumstances so sometimes like you know, that's what you need is just um, that uh, angry resolve is, the, is the, the, the phrase you were searching for before. It's like, you know, when you when you when you get fed up with failure, you get this. And that's exactly what Cadell Evans had you know, in the year he finally won the, the tours that he had that angry resolve where he was sick of losing. And he just sort of had a, another attitude that propelled him to, to victory in his seventh try. For, for you, you know, in your personal experience, you're saying I, I was a kid who had the good upbringing, you know, love and support. And, and, and in some ways I lacked that resilience. And then I kind of, you know, it kind of ultimately led to a downfall and, you know, where I kind of lacked a bit of courage. And then I came back. So what was the perspective that helped you find resilience? You know, um, it, it, was, it was a mix of things. Um, probably the most important element was um, intent, where, where becoming, becoming mentally strong was an explicit goal that I set. So I didn't necessarily know how to achieve it right away, but it made all the difference that I knew and could articulate that that's what I wanted. So I remember, you know, early in this process, I would do races where I would just, um, I would grade myself on mental toughness. Like after the race, it wasn't so much about, you know, what was my time or what was my place? It was, did I leave it all out there? And if I didn't, I, I wasn't satisfied with that. So, you know, I just, I, I just, I paid attention to that and, um, you know, I held myself to a high standard. Um, and you know, it did, it did not happen overnight. Even, you know, when I came back to running as an adult, I still struggled where I would just get painfully nervous before race, just, you know, fearing, uh, the suffering. Um, and so, you know, there were other things that sort of helped like uh, getting to interact with elite athletes, uh, helped me because I saw that they were actually just like me, you know, mm-hmm. like these, 
I mean, they were they had more talent, more inborn talent, but they they were normal humans who who also had fear and who also didn't really like suffering, and but they had even more pressure, you know, because these it's their livelihood. So you know, as I I, I tell people all the time, imagine you're standing on the start line of the Boston Marathon and you're the person who is expected to win it. Like imagine yeah. how much pressure yeah. you would feel. Well, guess what? The person who is on that start line who is expected to win it feels that pressure. Yeah, yeah. You know, imagine being able to cope with that on your shoulders. And it's really impressive and it's humbling. And so I sort of use that. It was just, um, it's one of the advantages of the work I do is I get to interact with some of the world's best endurance athletes. And it can really inspire you in almost a shaming kind of way sometimes because you, you see what, you know, these people are able to do, you know, just, as, just as normal human beings with a little, with a little extra talent. So those were some of the ingredients that allowed, allowed me to to get that monkey off my back. But it's kind of ironic because in your book, you there's a study that talks about the marathon group where they got a people group of people and they're looking at who faded away from the group and who kind of stuck to it. And those who are kind of more image-based or diet, trying to lose weight, they tend to have a bigger fall-off rate, whereas those who are a bit more kind of self-discovery, learning about themselves, that kind of life journey, those are the people who actually tend to have a bit more resilience ultimately. And I think that's what you're saying there is that yourself early on your career you didn't have that but then when you put your focus or your intent on this whole idea of i'm just trying to get to a high level of self then you are able to find that resilience in those tough times yes and that study you you just referenced also speaks to motivation mm. um you know the, obviously the more motivated you are to achieve a goal you know the more effort you will put into it and and the more likely you'll be able to overcome you know the setbacks that are that are inevitable and when you know when you're looking for motivation, it, it it's deeply personal. Different things motivate different different people. And so for me, yes, like you know, being an athlete was it it wasn't about making money for me because I that's you know, I wasn't that good, <laughs> um, you know. But yeah, but it was um, it was crucially important, like to how I saw myself as a person. Um, you know, I wanted. I wanted to be strong, you know, and, and to know myself as a strong person. And so, you know, I used athletics uh, to, to develop in that way. And it, it it meant I can't think of many things that could have meant more to, to me, you know. So so I had the motivation to see through see through that process. But for other people, it's different things, you know, for you know, I, I don't have children, but for I, I talk to a lot of athletes who are parents and for them, it's setting an example for their children is there's nothing more motivating for them than that. And that can, that can drive them through walls, you know, to, to achieve goals. So that, you know, that's a big part of it is finding, you know, what is it, what is it for me? Why does this matter to me? What makes it worth it? Mm. Well, it's just, uh, you know, there's a lot of people who listen to this show who you know, are struggling with exercise and, and often they are trying to find, you know, how do I lose 20 kgs, but maybe, you know, that idea of what is the real motivation that's going to tap in for me and, you know, and then how do I make sure that comes to the forefront of my mind as I kind of set my path forward? Yeah, there's um, in yet another book that I wrote in the past, one called Diet Cults. Um, I talk a little bit about that. So, you know, we, we've been talking about endurance sports, but if you if you're shift the discussion to weight weight loss what what you find is that most people who succeed in in losing a substantial amount of weight and keep it off fail number a number of times in the past so the the people who succeed in losing weight are the same people who fail <laughs> they're not they're they're not different people and usually what what the difference is you know I talked to a bunch of them for for this book 
it's it was the motivation. You know, it's not that they found a better diet. You know, it's not that, you know, it's not rocket science. You mm-hmm. know what you need to do, yeah. you know, eat, eat a little less, eat high quality, higher quality foods and, and, and exercise. Right. Yeah. yeah. So it's it's not, it's not about finding what works. Um, it's it's about finding the motivation or just, you know, it's the right motivation at the right time uh, for a lot of people. Mm. You, you tell a great story and being a Kiwi this one really put my ears and I actually remember these athletes about a couple of rowers um, from New Zealand who just did not fit the mould and uh, and it, the chapter starts with this great kind of analogy of them getting the Olympic gold medal and I remember at the time because it was quite big in New Zealand at the time These so for those who don't know the story a couple of Kiwi guys won the Olympic rowing medal in, in the double skulls or something I'm not quite sure what event it was but um, and it looked like there were two hobbits basically standing next to yes. <laughs> athletes on the side. Seriously, just think of two hobbits standing next to two athlete kind of characters in Lord of the Rings. And that's what <laughs> these guys were. And and the kind of, I think it was the workaround effect was the chapter. Um, and the whole idea of there are limits in physiology, but we can disprove them. And, you know, it was, to me in some ways, the, the thing about that chapter was that many people put limits on themselves. And actually, if you're willing to, look outside that you can still progress ultimately is probably the message really isn't it right yeah I, those are some of my favorite stories that I, you know, I told you I collect great stories yeah. from, from the world of endurance sports and when, when, when athletes who physically have quote unquote the wrong body to excel in their sport when they do it anyway yeah. um, it, those, are, those are beautiful stories um, and yeah so it's uh, Nathan Cohn and, and Joseph Sullivan um, yeah, I don't know anything about rowing, but I, you know, I, I boned up to write that chapter. But it, yeah, it's a great story, and there are others like that. And if you go back, if you trace it back to the beginning, it, it's the same pattern every time. Where you know, usually they get involved in a sport, uh, not because they have the right body for it, but because they love it. You know, and you know, maybe they show some early talent, but because they don't look the part, um, they face roadblocks. Uh, you know, for Cohen and Sullivan, it was just like the national team selectors would just not pick them, you yeah. know, to be... even though they were so dominant, you know, like it, right, exactly. you know, it wasn't like they were it's just like, on the verge. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's like, well, you're too short, but <laughs> or whatever. Um, so, yeah, yeah, you, you see this, you know, you see this happen. And so but these athletes, again, it's another example of, well, they could they could believe the coach and say, well, maybe I maybe I sh- maybe I can't be a rower after all. But they don't. You know, they're challenged by it. it. They have a, it puts a chip on their shoulder. It's the, the I'll show you attitude. And in a child, that's either in you or it's not really, you know, like there's got to be some spark, some fire in, 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 in these athletes who, who said, you know, the reaction is I'll show you. Um, and it's great, you know, because, you know, we all face limits of some kind. We all have an excuse to, to fail in, in one way or, or another. And if we don't now, we will eventually, you know, in that same chapter, I talk about an American runner who uh, uh, developed a, a huge uh, tumor in her hamstring muscle that had to be removed. Mm. And in order to take out the tumor, they had to take out the entire muscle. So this is an, this is an elite professional runner who no longer has one of her hamstring muscles. You know, she recovered from the cancer, but her doctor surgeon said, you know, good luck running again. But she actually came back and was better than, than ever. So and it was that same type of thing. It's like, all right, on physically, there's no reason I should be able to do this, but I'm just going to try anyway. And and it's amazing how adaptable you are. That's why the, the title of that chapter is The Workaround Effect. Mm. It's, you know, if you just say, you know what, 
I'm, I'm just going to, I don't care if it doesn't make sense, I'm just going to try anyway. You'd be amazed how, how you can adapt. Just, just a couple of quick points. Um, the, the chapter around letting go, I, I, th I think there's such a important message in that, you know, because there's this kind of, you know, like I, I deal with a lot of new exercises and when you deal with new exercises, there's just so much baggage um, and, and, and baggage is just, it's a weight on them that really ultimately is just taking them, you know, pulling them down from moving forward. Uh, and it was such a powerful chapter to me in some ways. And so maybe, maybe give us a little bit of description around what the kind of letting go theory or, or what you're kind of the message you were trying to get across here. Sure. Yeah. So that chapter was about the, the focus of that chapter was uh, an American triathlete named Siri Lindley, um, who back around 1999, 2000, she was the best American triathlete. And that year, triathlon became an Olympic sport for the first time. And she wanted that. Uh, she wanted that badly. Um, and she was considered a shoe in to make the team. There were going to be three three positions available for female American athletes. And she failed to make the team because in both of the selection races, she choked. You know, just a classic case of underperforming because the, the pressure broke her. Um, and um, in the book, I mentioned that the, the official scientific term for choking is choking. Yeah, it's like that made me laugh. Yeah. <laughs> they, they use the same word. <laughs> They've gone deep with that one. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and so, I, you know, when I explored the research on that subject, um, uh, what I learned was that choking tends to come from hyper self-consciousness. So, you know, when you when you under, when you underperform, whether it's a math test or, you know, public speaking or athletics or whatever, it's it's because you're thinking about yourself too much. You're too you're too self-aware. And often that comes from low self-esteem or, or insecurity. So so that's the sort of baggage I think you're referring to is that if you have if you have those issues and then you're put in a situation where there's there's you you feel pressure to perform, it turns your attention inward and it, it destroys you know, your opportunity to, to, to fulfill your potential. Mm. Um, so overcoming that often, it, it was at least for Siri Lindley, was uh, what, what it required of her was she still, it's not that you, you let go of your goals, uh, but you, you don't become, your self-worth your self is no longer dependent on achieving those goals. So yeah. for Siri Lindley, it was, if I can just make the Olympics, then I'll, love myself hmm. well the problem was that she didn't love herself hmm. yeah. <laughs> you know you know the, the olympics was just um she was sort of getting the cart before the horse it's like it's okay to set a goal for that but but you're but loving yourself or accepting yourself can't depend on achieving that because you just don't control everything you know you can't you can't make that happen um how many people actually get to go to the Olympics? You know, we need to love ourselves regardless. So yeah. she worked with a coach, fortunately, who kind of recognized what her issue was. And, and when he when she started training with him, he said, you know what? Just pretend you're retired. Just pretend you, you don't even have these goals anymore. You're no longer a professional and just love this sport again because you got into it because you enjoyed it. And we're going to work hard, but we're going to we're going to stay focused on the process The you know, just the day to day swimming, biking, running. And then we'll see where that gets you. And it worked. You know, she just sort of she shoved those goals out, out of her mind. And she said, you know, it was like a weight was lifted off her shoulders immediately where she was just always in the moment and working hard, but enjoying the process of just, you know, being a triathlete. And she ended up, you know, the year after she missed out on the Olympics, she won the world championship mm. uh, in triathlon. Yeah. And it also interesting that she kind of gave up after that instantly. She, she had a much longer career in front of her, didn't she? 
Yeah, which is which is really fascinating yeah, because it, it? it it really showed you that that's what she was in it for, you know, just like she to achieve a certain thing, and mm. then once it really it was never really about triathlon. Yeah, for her. it was it fascinating. Was about, yeah. It was just about becoming whole, uh, and you know, once that was, uh, you know, once once she achieved that, you know, there was no there was no longer any reason. Like so, she went on to coaching, and she's become. Uh, she's one of the world's best triathlon yeah. coaches, uh, and uh, I think it's it's largely because she understands the psychological uh, side of the sport so well from the experience she had. There's such a good message in there, isn't there? Because you know, so many people are trying to achieve a goal because they think the end point is happiness. You know, that, that if I get to this, I'm going to be recognised or accepted or whatever. You know, that that thing that you you know you talked about there with Siri, and 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 ultimately. It's the person who's chasing more money, isn't it? The, 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 once I get to a million, I'm going to be happy. And, and then you get to a million, right. 10 million, and you're never actually going to get happy. And the shift on yeah. the focus of the enjoyment of the growth and allowing myself just to kind of absorb and seek that is almost the better way to put your focus, really, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, goals are important. You know, they, mm. they serve a function, but the, the, the point of a goal is not to achieve it, <laughs> it yeah. really isn't. The, the point of a goal is to inspire your best effort um, and to change you hmm. uh, in, in some positive way. So, you know, uh, quite honestly, as, as an athlete, you know, I, I, I still compete, you know, and, and I really don't care if I achieve my goals or not. It, 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 it's always satisfying when you do, hmm. but it's just, it's where, it's where the pursuit of the goal leads you that ultimately is much more deeply fulfilling. Yeah, well, like for me, it's always been about search of higher self. That's always the thing I always kind of, you know, like it's how do I make today a better day than yesterday kind of thing. It's such a simple way of living. But I love that. And I love that moment when you kind of, you hit something new and then it's like, oh, wow, this, you know, and then you go to a high level of focus, right. and, you know, and, and sure, the outcomes in my life will be better because of I'm searching for this and it's nice to get those outcomes. But ultimately, it's like, man, I'm, you know, I love the idea of wisdom and that 10 years from now, whatever this thing I am will be much more wiser. And, you know, to me, that's much more appealing than trying to find the marker that shows that I'm good, if you get what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. Ultimately, you know, life is a collection of experiences. And, you know, you just like you, when you're looking back at the end of your life on on the journey you've had, it's you know, the thing that's going to make you feel good about your life is just having had those rich experiences, not a resume, you mm, know, yeah. at that point, it just doesn't matter. And it, and it never should. But it's so I think, you know, I'm only halfway through my journey, I think I hope or, but you know, you hear that all the time where you know, it's just like looking forward, you have one perspective, and then looking back, you have another. And you need sort of that looking back perspective when, when you're still early in the journey to recognize that it's really the experiences. Uh, that that make life worth living so just lastly you know you, you you go into this project with this kind of you know here's what i want to kind of put together um you know you've, I, I love your book i think you've done a really great job here uh when you finish up what were the key things that shifted in you like did it influence the way you've lived your life after the fact boy yeah you know there's a there was a not to this perhaps is irrelevant, but there's a, a famous French writer, a, a philosopher named Jacques Derrida. Um, no, it wasn't. It was Michel Foucault, another one. And he said, like, um, someone, someone accused him of contradicting himself in, in, in a book. He said, well, in this other book, you said this other thing. He said, the purpose of writing a book is to change. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, I can, um, so that was maybe a, a pretentious analogy, but I feel the same way, even though I'm not a famous French philosopher. Like, 
you know, so, <laughs> so, but yeah, absolutely. In the spirit of your question, by the time I got to the end of this, um, I, you know, I, I sort of, it could not, it couldn't help but affect me like going forward. Like I learned a ton. Like when, when you read the book, you might think, well, he knew all this already. And then he just wrote it down. No, I didn't. <laughs> You know, most of the stuff in there, a lot of the science in there um, was, you know, absolutely new, new to me. Um, so, you know, just going right back to that, that letting go example, that that process focus, like that was a message I needed too, um, mm -hmm. because w one of the things I one of the things that makes me that drives my competitive side is a desire to earn the respect of other people. Um, and that's natural enough, but ultimately it's kind of shallow, <laughs> mm. you know, and it's like, if that's all it, 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 that can get, you don't want too, em too much emphasis on that kind of mm. thing. Just, you know, impressing other people because you're, you're fast mm. or whatever. So, you know, just, uh, learning all about that research on, on choking and, um, and, you know, Siri Lindley's journey, it just, it made me more conscious of being more process focused, uh, than I had been before. So, yeah, absolutely. I'm, you know, just uh, I'm in a slightly different place as an athlete and a coach as well. Um, I, you know, I'm more sensitive. And another thing that came out of it is I'm much more sensitive to some of the, the differences between male and female mm. athletes. Not that all not that all women are the same and all men are the same. But there are some there are some general differences that, you know, that Venus and Mars thing that, that, yeah. that you encounter. Um, and it was really interesting to just, you know. To, you know, because some of the stories I had tried, I went for gender balance in 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 the stories I told, and I noticed, you know, there were certain themes coming up. Like men tended to deal with certain kinds of issues, and and women more often would tend uh, to deal with different sort of uh, other kinds of issues. So that was sort of an unexpected thing that came out of it. That's really helped me as a coach, because I I'm a guy, I think like a guy, and sometimes yeah. I need to put myself in another person's perspective and have a little empathy for people who aren't, you know, exactly like I am. Yeah, well, guys, it's a really great book. If if you want to get it, it's on Amazon. You go, I'll go put the link to Matt's website also on the show notes for this. Matt, thank you so much for your time. Um, I, I really recommend the book. You know, it's one of those books where you read, and you know the way he's written it, it is kind of you identify with a lot of it, even though it is elite people. It is still just a human struggle, really, isn't it? And 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 ultimately really what it is is a bit of human struggle in each chapter around a certain focus and then there's some kind of ways of thinking about things which ultimately hopefully opens you up to kind of moving forward and that's ultimately i suppose the goal of the book isn't it yeah very much so yeah if there were only a book for other elite athletes uh that would be a pretty small readership. Yeah, I, think it, I think, yeah, I think, I think it's a book for for humans for sure. And and if you want to check out Matt's prolific amount of work, you just go to Amazon. He's got like a million books on there. He's basically just Amazon.com. So uh, <laughs> I'll check that out. I'll put a link to all his work on on, on the show notes. Thanks for coming on, Matt. Thanks, Bevan. Alrighty, guys. Hopefully you enjoyed that. If you again, if you want to get his book, which again I highly recommend, go to www.iamtalk.me and I'll have a link to that in the show notes. And again, you can get his other book, which he's just recently released, "The Endurance Diet: Discover the Five Core Habits of the World's Greatest Athletes Used to Look, Feel, and Perform Better." That's pretty much today's show. But before we do, let's just do a quick cover sponsor. So the other sponsor is what is it? Athlinks.com. One thing that's really cool about Athlinks.com, particularly if you've got a lot of results in there, is it does some statistics around your kind of average performances. So if you want to kind of see, I've done 100 10k races. 
it's been my average over all my races. And behind the scenes of athletes, as you put your results in, kind of gives you these calculations. It can say, here's your best half marathon time, and here's your average time. And it's a way that you can kind of geek out on your own kind of figures and your own statistics around your results over the years. Now, one of the things to be really successful with athletes is to make sure you get into the habit of always putting your results in, or at least claiming your results. So on some big races, they're going to be on Athlinks. Like if you're going to do an IMM race, generally speaking, the results are going to turn up on Athlinks. But you might have a local small cycle race that only, you know, 100 people do, but they put it on their website. Well, if you go to their website and then put that link on Athlinks, those results are going to sit in Athlinks forever. And what's cool, as John often mentions, is a lot of these results disappear over time. So a lot of local cycling clubs fade away or races disappear. But if you've taken that time to commit to putting a little bit of a link on Athlinks, your results will stay forever. So if you aren't on Athlinks, check it out. And if you are on it, get into that habit of inputting your races as soon as you've done them and you won't regret it. You know, Imagine 20 years from now, if you have all of your athletic results stored on Athlinks, I guarantee you won't regret doing that. So check it out, athlinks.com. Right, again, well, guys, well, that's gone, that's pretty much today's show. We're going to be back into the studios next week. Obviously, it's 2017 now, so hopefully you've got some pretty ambitious goals for this year, and you're going to get really fit and achieve some awesome, amazing triathlon goals throughout the year. It's been an exciting year for us last year. 2016 was a big year for our show. We want to kind of take it to the next level in 2017. We're really excited because we're going to Rote. We've got our camp, but also we're going to do a lot of coverage, kind of like our Kona coverage while we're in Rote. So it's going to be a pretty exciting awesome experience for us to go through so just really 2017 big big year so make sure you hang around make sure you spread the word about the show and uh once again to all the patrons and the sponsors athlinks.com and extreme endurance and our patrons you guys rock we'll be back in the studio i'll be back with john so i'll see you same time same place next week i am russ i'm in don't train hard train smart kia kaha